Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Womenhood and International Relations podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Bonilla. And for today's episode, we will be addressing social media warfare effects on us. This episode will be part two of a previous one that we recorded on war journalism's effects on us, in which we discussed the ways that traditional media, be it radio, TV, newspapers, books, and more, tend to frame international news conflicts in a way that dehumanizes some sides and privileges others, in a framing that tends to cater and divide audiences into an us versus them narrative. We also discussed the evolution of war journalism and how it led in the 1970s to the proposition of a peace journalism angle, something that sociologists Johan Kaltung, as, as well as many other scholars in the communications and sociology field, offered as a way to balance the information regarding international news. This partly due to the phenomenon that we saw in the Vietnam War in the 1960s and 1970s that became the Vietnam War, the first televised war that got a 24-hour coverage on a TV news channel and how that affected public opinion in the United States in what later became known as the CNN effect. In the podcast episode of the War Journalism Effects on Us, we reflect on the history and the application of war journalism and peace journalism from the 1970s onwards and how the embedment of news correspondence with state military groups and non-state military actors and rebel groups and the rise of freelance journalists and citizen journalism, particularly after the 2000s with the popularization of the internet and the creation of social media platforms, helped broaden the scope of information and understanding regarding the complex nature of international conflicts and of local conflicts as well. Um, the Arab Spring um, created a ripple effect for citizen journalism and for social media uprisings. And it also helped um, shape the way that news coverage in traditional news media, as well as alternative news media in the forms of documentaries or transmedia and multimedia projects were made. And through which lenses, through which framings, be it war journalism, peace journalism, or more, most recently, solutions journalism, are stories being published or shared. While the Iraq war showcased the limits of war journalism and the catering of this narrative to the interest of national security and government um, censorship or government approval, the Syrian war in the 2010s became up to this date the most socially mediatic civil war. After the Arab Spring and after the Syrian civil war, the international news coverage of conflicts locally and internationally changed.
and the rise of PSYOPs, misinformation, disinformation campaigns, and social media warfare began. And the 2020 pandemic came to seal the deal. It is no surprise that the levels of censorship, the threats to freedom of expression and freedom of press, and the rise of alternative media outlets, of social media influencers, and of conspiracy theories that led to the development of the post-truth era. And before we dig any deeper, I want to uh, share with you a bit of my background in case you're wondering my connection to this topic. I am a journalist. I studied journalism at my bachelor's degree. I did a master's degree in international relations and I did a postgraduate diploma on conflict and peace journalism. I've also done trainings on humanitarian reporting and media in conflicts and I've done research on the role that media, international news media and local news media have played in uh, the peace processes, particularly in the case of Colombia where I've written a chapter that has been published in a book called La Colombia del Posacuerdo. I have also worked over a decade for international news media outlets, for different international media companies and local media companies in the US and in Puerto Rico. And I've also done freelance work for media companies in Europe and in Latin America. I've produced three independent documentary productions and I've also produced events and trainings and classes and courses and webinars. Some of you already have gone into some of my webinars in the Spanish language on media literacy, on peace and conflict journalism and the need to rethink the way that the media industry is shaping our perception of the world but also to rethink the way that we as audiences consume media and how we relate to the information that that specific media, be it the one that we follow or the one that we want to criticize or the one that we want to cancel out because we don't agree with anything that they share or anything that they represent, how are we relating to the type of information that is being presented to us, be it in the online or the offline space? And ultimately, how this type of information that we process on international news and international conflicts affect our behavior and our relationship to one another. If anything, take that question with you and come with your own conclusions. Today, we will be addressing this topic of social media warfare in two parts. The first part will be a conversation, several reflections on the different social media dynamics that we are seeing, not only with the Israel-Hamas conflict, but also that we have been seeing for quite some time since the Syrian war and the Ukraine-Russia conflict and the Myanmar coup. Uh, we have Fisher already interviews on the rise of disinformation and misinformation campaigns on um, the different uh, conflicts, including Afghanistan and the Iranian protests. I'm gonna be featuring down below in the description box the links to those episodes in case you want to hear those interviews. Um, we also have Fisher interviews on the concept of psychic numbing and how people relate from 
a psychologic and a sociologist per perspective to mass human rights violations and why some people tune out and why others um, you know, are uh, acting upon this information and, you know, the different motives that they um, take on. We also have featured interviews on the military industry complex, how banks with perhaps our money, depending on the bank, um, may be financing wars and maybe, you know, in this business of uh, creating more conflicts. We also have featured uh, interviews on militarized masculinities and feminist perspectives to human security and uh, feminist uh, perspectives to international peace. And all of those interviews will be featured down below in the description box. And I know that I'm making a long, long introduction to the topic, but it is necessary because in this post-truth era, where depending on the situation and the context, people usually tend to believe what they want to believe and not necessarily the truth. And actually, like, let's question what is the truth, you know, because there's a mistrust to any type of information, any type of source of information, because there may be some hidden agendas onto everything that is being shared today and that also leads to the growth of conspiracy theories and of mistrust in sources and unverified photos and texts and news and the viralization of content just for likes or right now uh, as we are seeing with the Israel Hamas conflict the use of AI to change and modify pictures um, to feed certain um, national interests or particular interests for XYZ purpose. It is very challenging to navigate information nowadays in this post-truth era. And censorship and attacks and battlegrounds, digital battlegrounds and threats that are online but that can become offline too like in the live world are growing so in a way what i'm gonna be presenting now to you take whatever resonates with you read whatever article fits your own understanding of the world and if possible, the invitation is to continue reflecting upon this and talk with your friends or your colleagues and further the conversation on your own spheres of influence and see if you are connected to this type of information, if you find any value in it. And if not, whatever doesn't resonate, leave it aside. I'm not here, and I didn't create this episode to convince you of something. I'm gonna present you what's going on, the different dynamics on social media warfare, and it is up to you to believe if it's true, if it is not, if there's patterns, if there's trends, etc. I understand that I may not hold the truth on many things, but I know how media, particularly media, works and how it shapes public opinion. And what we are seeing in the international news coverage of the Israel-Hamas conflict, of the mass human rights violations that are going on in Gaza, 
and the different human rights violations and ethnic cleansings and wars and the use of hunger as a weapon of war and the use of sexual violence as a weapon of war and the different gender, race, sexual orientation, religious persecutions and discriminations going on in different parts of the world in other conflicts like Sudan, like Tigray, Afghanistan, Iran, East Turkestan, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Ukraine and Russia conflict, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the list goes on and on and on. And, you know, we could spend the whole day talking about international conflicts. And that's not the topic here. The topic is how we, each of us, relate to the information that is being presented to us by traditional media outlets by alternative media outlets or citizen journalists etc or social media influencers etc about local or international conflicts and how we process that information how we make decisions thoughts based on it and I do these thoughts and discourses and analyses and movements or actions move the needle forward in terms of conflict resolution or creates, on the other hand, more conflict, more violence. So let's begin with part one. We will then follow with a part two on international relations and some feminist perspectives based on the different works that we have done on the podcast and the different reflections we have covered so far. Um, so if you're interested on feminist perspectives, feminist theory in IR, and these whole different dynamics that the Israel-Hamas conflict have spurred recent, uh, recently in the past few weeks, then stick around for the part two. I'm going to start with part one, social media warfare. Okay, what's our connection to this topic? And is it true that there's a war going on on social media? Have you noticed or have you felt that social media platforms that you are perhaps engaging with, whichever is of your liking, has become a less conducive place for respectful conversations but rather it has become like a place where if you share your political values or your religious values or ideas etc then um, violence direct cultural structural indirect or you know perhaps a boycott or a censorship or any type of digital violence may occur. And have you identified a time period, a specific moment, conflict, news story, post that you launched, political value, or I don't know, any type of opinion that you shared, or photo, or image, or text, or video, etc., that caused a before and after of your portrayal in the social media platform of your choosing. 
why these questions are important to start uh, talking about social media warfare? Because censorship, hacking, doxing, stealing information or stealing posts or ideas or photos, discriminatory memes and posts, cyber stalking and cyber harassment, death threats, rape threats, and many other forms of digital violence that some of you that are researching on ending gender-based violence know that this is one of the many forms that um, the gender-based violence continue. It is not something of today. It is not something that just happened out of the blue. If you take the digital element out of it, would these practices find origins in other time periods? Or is this something only that we experience now in the digital age? Or have the digital age, and because we as humans, you know, are inheriting certain customs or traditions or ways of relating to one another in the live world or the offline worlds, projecting those type of behaviors or those type of discourses into our online personas and our relationships in social media. And have we found that social media has become either an unsafe space for speech, for existence, or has it become an, a safer place? Because you can externalize if you're doing all these um, digital violence forms, you can externalize those behaviors without much accountability or responsibility on your actions and how it may harm others. Social media warfare taps into that. It is interesting because there's an article that I'm going to be featuring down below in the description box. It's by a consulting agency called Prevency that does trainings on uh, digital defense and digital resilience. And they created this article of how social media has become a weapon in the information age. And it talks about how 20 years ago, um, scientists predicted that with the rise of the internet in the 21st century, cyber warfare was a possible threat that governments needed to pay attention to. But interestingly, at first, uh, the scientists in this sphere uh, thought that the attack would be on IT or the communication systems, you know, like the antennas or the mobile providers or the internet providers, etc. But something began to happen as we move forward in the 21st century is that there was not a need to hack, for example, Facebook or Twitter or any other social media platform to inflict pain on the users. But what if information itself could become a weapon of war to be used either by states, by companies, by political parties by 
grassroots organizations or rebel groups or whatever, before Vendetta type of thing. <laughs> I'm going to quote here how they define social media warfare. Uh, this article, once again, is listed down below in the description box. Opening quote. Social media warfare describes the use of social media as a kind of weapon with the aim of causing lasting damage to certain actors, such as governments or companies. Various strategies and tactics, as well as technological means, are used in order to push through a political, economic, social, or cultural agenda. Social media warfare is usually aimed at manipulating the perception and thus also the opinions, emotions, and behavior of a specific target group, thereby harming the actual target of the attack. Examples of means in social media warfare include the dissemination of false information in social media networks, the use of social bots, and the influencing of defined target groups by means of micro-targeting. Social media warfare is thus also about a battle for attention, which is to be won by generating viral content and exploiting the mechanisms of the prevailing attention economy on the internet. Thus, the attackers create narratives and content that are intended to emotionally address and polarize online users in order to stand out from the excess supply of content on the social web and achieve the greatest possible effect. Closing quote. The article also lists uh, different types of strategies and means used in social media warfare. Among them include targeting and information gathering, manipulation through information, social engineering, the swarming tactic, social cyber attacks, mobilization and commitment, hashtag hijacking, fake identities, sock puppet accounts, and social bots. But today, I want to focus, I invite you once again to read the article, um, but I want to focus on this one, on manipulation through information. Because this one particularly has different approaches. The attackers use manipulation for information for different approaches. And I open quote, Deception. By spreading false information or rumors, attackers try to deceive their target group in a systematic way. It is also common to produce artificial attention for one topic in order to divert attention away from another. Confusion. By providing contradictory information, attackers try to create confusion and a feeling of insecurity in the target group. This makes the target group more prone to simplifying representations and propaganda designed to harm the target. Division. The attackers try to divide societies or groups by spreading extreme opinions as well as hatred and agitation on the internet. 
the public conflict in turn is supposed to lead to strong negative feelings and a higher susceptibility to certain narratives. Exposure. The attackers publish false confidential information or data in order to publicly expose the target of the attack. And discrediting and defamation. The aggressors attack the reputation of the target and spread reputation damaging and defamatory content in the social media. Closing quote. It is very interesting to explore each one of these strategies and once again invite you to do your own research and reflect upon whether the conflicts that you are researching about or that are you following or that are you uh, trying to help in um, are experiencing this type of uh, strategies in terms of how the uh, information is being manipulated. Um, there are some statistics here uh, that the uh, Prevency uh, website provides, but I'm not sure what's the source. It doesn't say if it's from a survey or if it was just information from XYZ source. It doesn't say so, but the statistics that they provide is that 3.8 billion people worldwide are using social media platforms. Around 70% of younger social media users believe that they are manipulated online. Around 30% of internet traffic is caused by harmful bots. In 70 countries, coordinated social media manipulation was proven. Once again, it doesn't list the source, so take it at face value, I imagine. 150% uh, increase in proven social media operations in the last two years. And in 73% of the cases, novel methods like hashtag hijacking were detected. So it, it's very interesting as well to know that um, social media warfare is considered a hybrid form of warfare. The other article uh, that I will be listing down below in the description box was written by Alex von Tufelman um, and was written and published in The Guardian. Um, it's called Can Social Media Change the Course of War? And it does a very brief um, revision of history in the sense that we often think of the Vietnam War as the first one to be you know, televised. But what about the first wars that were photographed in the 19th century? And um, the author lists the Mexican-American War and the Crimean War as two that were systematically photographed and documented and how it helped raise awareness on the situation of soldiers and the perception of the battlefields. And then it goes on to address uh, 20th century and 21st century um, conflicts and how uh, with the new technologies and the social media platforms um, there's a debate on the ethics and the credibility of wartime information because we are receiving information from different sources, be it traditional media or alternative media or social media or citizen journalists that are on the ground sending live information at the moment that are trying to um, capture our, our attention. But interestingly, and here I want to say this because this is something that I have found also in my research work, um, there's a need to understand 
which type of documentaries and films and videos by XYZ influencer or journalist or media outlet alternative or uh, traditional or mainstream may be created as a counter propaganda. There is another interview that I invite you to check it out once again if you're interested is called Why Social Media is the New Weapon in Modern Warfare. This was published in 2019. Uh, in, it was an interview featuring authors Peter W. Singer and Emerson T. Brookin. Um, they are the authors of the book Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. In this interview for Knowledge at War Done, uh, both authors explain um, how the design of these social media platforms were deliberately made to make them addictive. So they are all part of the attention economy. So they profit out of people staying on the platforms and you know uh, taking photos and uploading content and images and sharing their views and whatever they're thinking about, etc. And how with time and you know with the evolution of new technologies and the competition amongst social media platforms in business wise have led to uh, the changes in algorithms what actually gets attention and this is something that not only uh, these two authors have uh, shared more in this uh, interview but I don't know if some of you have watched the Social Dilemma documentary that was featured, I don't know, I think a couple of years ago in, so in Netflix that talks about how Facebook and Google um, frame and um, cater particular news depending on the country and the context and, you know, the type of agendas that they want to pursue or their financiers or the people that they want to support etc and how they hid or hide if that's the word hide some other news articles or videos or content from the audiences that they are targeting and that leads to more confusion and more conflict because as in the social dilemma uh, documentary that I invite you to check it out, um, they use uh, the social, um, social no, the 2016 uh, presidential election in the United States, um, the Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton's um, presidential election and how users in different um, states within the United States were being targeted by their demographics and by their political values and catered specific content. So they thought that what they were reading on the news cycle or on their chosen um, news platform was the truth. And when they started speaking with other people, other people that received other types of news or were allowed to see other type of content you know, it created more division and more conflict among one another. Um, and that's on the documentary. I invite you once again to do your own research on this and probably you will find um, things are happening in your own local context connected to this. But um, once again, connecting or going back to uh, this interview with um, Emerson um, Brookings and Peter Singer, um, something that they uh, said, um, they, they talk about the different conflicts from um, the Middle East uh, wars and China and the role of the United States. But something that I want to rescue here are two uh, things. 
The first one has to do with the arguments that are going on online and how Brookings looks at arguments. So Brookings says, and I open quote, when you think about it, something like a gang feud or even a really angry political argument, so much of it is performative. If you are in one of these performative contexts, is the logical tool to broadcast yourself to a wider audience. But the trouble is, just the way this information flows, we are not really, we are not yet really adapted to deal with it. Very quickly, emotions can make these feuds spiral out of control. Closing quote. I think this may resonate with some of you that have followed or have read the book, The Politics of Fear. Uh, of by Martha Nussbaum and how you know the politics um, either in election time or in uh, war times uh, can shape public opinion and can move the needle very easily based on appealing to our survival instincts and our fear of not belonging or our fear of being targeted or being hunted or harassed or tortured or discriminated against etc that people um, and this is part of human psychology tend to um, you know go with the flow and go with the trend and go with what people are saying you know because they want to belong they don't want to be excluded or they don't want to be harmed or hurt and how we tend to praise those that are revolutionary if in this post-truth era they fit our understandings of the world or our perceptions of the world in that sense one key element that peter singers uh, brings to the table is that what we do online does have real world effects and i'm going to open quote but in a world where so much depends on winning online it's having very real world effects this is important to understand whether you're a business that's dealing with this phenomena but also all of us as individuals because we are the targets of these wars whether it's a marketing war or a real-world war, we are the ones whose clicks decide whose side wings out. Closing quote. The interview finishes off with the possibility of the new algorithms and what could happen if an algorithm in a social media platform um, and for particular demographics and target audiences changes and you know sparrows or benefits some ideas or some ethnicities or races over others you know or political causes or social causes over others and what could happen if eventually and perhaps this is already happening i don't know um artificial intelligence is the one choosing what algorithms should people follow which trends should be the ones that people talk about we don't know i don't know if it's already being used in this particular conflict or it has started um because you know much of these 
uh, experimental things stay hidden for quite some time and then suddenly one day Pandora's box opens and it's like oh great uh, we have been subjected to consume this type of information for so much time so there are two last articles that I want to share on part one of today's episode. Um, one has to do with how the online impacts the way we perceive conflict. This was um, article written by Ioana Varga, uh, published in 2022 in the TEDx Vienna magazine. I'm going to be listing it down below in the description box. And Ioana uh, shares and I open quote, in the era of online communication, attention is currency and the potential to exploit it for financial gains is immense. What's more, consuming news via social media can lead to a false sense of understanding and security. With political ties being more convoluted than ever before, understanding the full context takes research and the ability to be open to nuance which social networks often remove. Considering how algorithms contribute to the forming of echo chambers, the probability of any given user risking exposure to a single, more than likely skewed perspective is high. Closing quote. She also addresses uh, the many uh, consequences to our psychological and emotional health that, uh, you know, consuming news about wars or seeing wars unfold on social media and you know on traditional media for that matter can affect us all um, she addresses the concept of compassion fatigue um, but there's also another uh, study um, that was released by uh, time magazine on the particular case of the Ukraine-Russia conflict and how emotional distress and you know uh, headline stress disorder uh, has been part of the several um, symptoms and effects that you know being exposed or living war through the screen of social media can have on us and. You know, this leads me to wonder, and I open this question as an open-ended question, um, whether the way that we relate on social media has changed because we are trying to change or stop wars, but feeling frustrated because we are in different other parts of the world, very, very far away from the countries that we want to, to stop the wars in, um, and feeling completely powerless. And in a way, it also led me to think, and I know that this may sound a bit cuckoo, but we have addressed some uh, spiritual and energetics um, conversations in the podcast if you're new to the podcast uh, that's why I'm making the disclaimer but it also has led me to think about the concept of whether our spirits and our souls or our minds or our emotions or our hearts if we want to go in that sense of talking actually feels resentful of being exposed to this type of imagery and this type of human rights violations that are being documented and being showcased on social media in very crude and raw forms and in a way we want to do everything 
to call for a ceasefire, to protect human life, to stop uh, the fighting, to stop the suffering. And it comes from a place of feeling like we don't want to be witnesses of this type of horrors or this type of crimes against humanity. That's a theory and a hypothesis that I'm like thinking about on the spiritual and energetics uh, realms. Um, that's not the focus of today's uh, podcast. But on that same line, um, there was a, a meme. Um, I'm going to be listing it down below in the description box. It's not a meme. It's a design um, by uh, Masen Kerbach. Um, she posted... Uh, it is a user on Instagram that has posted a reel, an IG carousel, on Beat the Propaganda on the Israel-Hamas um, conflict. And there was one that actually um, captured my attention for the topic of today, which was a picture of a phone. And inside the text reads, open quote, On this side of the screen, we watch the people on the other side of the screen die. We wash, they die, closing quote. And that ties in with the terrifying possibility that we are witnessing the suffering of others, the pain of others, as Susan Sontag used to write on her book on photography for war, war journalism photography, um, we talked about it in the episode on war journalism's effect on us, um, but actually brings to consideration whether all these Hollywood movies, Hollywood movies, have in a way prepared us to sustain or to handle or to detach ourselves. I don't know the best word to say it in the English language, but to detach ourselves from the suffering of others because you know, we have been subjected and now tomorrow is Halloween. So uh, at least in some parts of the world, 30, October 31st. So we have been subjected in some parts of the world to so much um, horror movies and killings and um, either by a narrative of the hero trying to save humanity or, you know, an enemy trying to erase humanity for X, Y, Z or apocalypses kind of movies, etc. When we see these horrors unfold on live 24-7, it's as if we may react in an emotional way or we may just continue watching and doom scrolling and continue consuming those that type of information thinking that we want to remember and we want to um, learn and we want to um, have more information and more sources in order to make a statement or in order to um, be politically correct or not be ignorant about a specific subject etc in that way and here is an hypothesis and a reflection, is there a possibility that the more that we doom scroll and we participate in social media warfare or in digital battlegrounds, whatever word that you want to choose, or in psyops or in misinformation and disinformation campaigns, 
whatever we consciously or unconsciously participate on them by the attention that we give to them, is it possible that a part of us see that content or has normalized that content as entertainment? And as a follow-up question, do we actually care about these realities, about these conflicts? Because today we are being presented with the Israel-Hamas conflict, but a couple of months ago, we were presented with the Ukraine-Russia conflict, and a couple of years ago, it was the Syrian conflict, and a couple of years ago, it was Sudan and Tigray and you know, the, the list continues on, you know, what is the conflict that international news media is presenting today or social media is trying to present as trendy and are we bulldozed in a way to care because that is what everybody is talking about and we should talk about it, of course, because we don't want to be left out. But then if we talk about it, it can create more animosity and more problems. So it's better to just stay shut. But then it creates more problems because people don't want you to stay shut. They want you to speak up. But then when you speak, they don't like your tone of voice or they don't like what you have to say. Because whatever, there's some personal views of how you should use your language and how you should show support and this leads me to another hypothesis which is the conversation on globalization and i think i talked about it previously today on uh, the transnational feminism um, episode but something was you know irking my nerves at the beginning of the israel hamas conflict and some of you knew uh, that i shared this on social media on my instagram because i was very very angry at listening to male political analysts in Latin America talking about the Israel-Hamas conflict the very first day, October 7th and October 8th, the second day. And the main criticism that they had was blaming feminists as to why are they not speaking up for women in Gaza or in Israel or in West Bank. And it was so deafening and unaware of the different post-colonial and decolonial feminist perspectives and how different feminists are and how they view the world and how women view the world because not all women are feminists and not all feminists are women but it's interesting that the first line of thought of this political analyst was to blame those that were not speaking up for other women and other people of other ethnicities and races and religions in other parts of the world as if the feminist movements and the feminist scholarship was universal and you know one monotone type of message and it, it just lacked perspective and it really brought into my attention the possibility that you know the social media warfare that we are seeing right now the information warfare is that's the better word 
to describe what may be going on in your own country is a bit contradictory to what we are trying to bring with feminist perspectives. And I, this is something I'm still trying to figure out uh, for those of you that are following the podcast for quite some time and feminist perspectives and feminist theory in IR, I, I started wondering in which moment do we show solidarity and support to one another and to other populations and to the human rights protection and defense of populations, marginalized communities in other parts of the world, not in our countries, without in our language, in our message or discourse, or in our political commentaries, reproducing the savior complex. I started wondering about that because I read articles blaming Western liberal feminists for choosing sides. And I said, okay, I, I didn't see these Western liberal feminists choosing sides because the, the information that I had access to because of these algorithms, I don't know, social media platforms doing their magic and, you know, diverging people into demographics or whatever. But my Twitter, my Instagram was flooded and still is nowadays flooded for Palestinian support, for immediate calls to ceasefire, for the uh, different uh, Palestinian voices, Palestinian women voices. Of course, I follow these type of organizations of women's rights and feminist organizations. So for me, perhaps it's more easy to see this type of um, narratives and discourses in favor of uh, Palestinian women and people in Gaza, not so much support on Israel, although uh, Twitter, um, the people that I follow on Twitter have, you know, um, more views uh, than Instagram. But I don't know, I, I started wondering on this, who, who are you reading? And what type of Western liberal feminists are being completely oblivious to the fact that human rights violations in Israel, in Gaza, in West Bank, in, you know, like, I, I, I do not see them. And I even started searching on YouTube, like, let me check if there was a Western liberal female feminist <laughs> that was speaking in a way that reflected feminist values, but that also was choosing one side over the other and I couldn't find it. I don't know if it's an algorithm thing. I don't know if it's part of the social media warfare division. And I'm not saying that for this particular author and probably other people that believe the same thing, um, these realities do not exist and that they have not been exposed to that type of social media post. I'm not saying that. Of course, they may be uh, a possibility that they have been exposed to those types of um, statements and dynamics but it was so interesting I started thinking okay so the the blaming aspect to feminists 
for not speaking up, for not doing enough, for... And then when they speak up, then they also get blamed because they're choosing sides and not, not doing the correct thing of what's suspected of feminism as if feminism is a perfect idea and realist theory and liberal theory and Marxist theory and constructivist theory are the perfect theories that nobody challenges. But for some reason, feminist theory is always challenged and seen as bad as you know as the enemy for one reason or another it irks the nerve of so many people and i wonder why to the other conversation like why some lives are more important than others and we are seeing it with the israel and uh, gaza conflict but we are also seeing it across the board israel and the Palestinian conflict has the biggest majority of news correspondents per capita. That's the geographic zone where most news outlets are currently based on. And yes, the conflict have uh, continued for over 70 years, so you know, it's, it's as if, you know, news correspondents are having their embassies already in Jerusalem or in Israel or in the West Bank or in Gaza, you know, like they are posted there because the conflict continues for decades. Um, but I wonder, right now we are seeing the question of why some lives are more valuable than others. Is media traditional mainstream, massive, social media. An essential element for us to care about one another. If social media is not covering what's going on in Myanmar or with the Rohingya or the Yemen war, or what's happening in Afghanistan, or what's going on in Ecuador with the indigenous populations, and what's going on in Brazil, or, you know, in the inner corners of Canada, or what's going on in San Kitts and Nevis. If media, as part of the majority of cultures, does not pay attention to whatever is going on or if it doesn't create more problems as we also have seen that media has been used by state and non-state actors to cause ethnic conflicts and to end them too media has been used for the creation the reporting the profiting and the ending of conflicts in the 20th and 21st century. I started my third documentary map, Ser Mujer en Latinoamérica, with that question, why some lives of women matter more than others? And then it became a statement. Some lives of women matter more than others. And today I'm trying to figure out if media plays a huge part 
in our caring, our plane of importance of people and their social, racial, gender, and political identities. Media, how powerful it is for the creation, the continuance, and the termination of international conflicts and how we relate to media. We may distrust it, mistrust it, but then the next day we are running once again to the television to see what's the latest news and the latest development on XYZ conflict. And then I came to the realization as a professional in this field of media and also IR that it is not that media don't cover conflicts all the same is that we as people don't pay attention to it or even if it's better to say it this way we have been taught to not pay attention to it. Because you can go to CNN, you can go to Al Jazeera, you can go to the BBC, you can go to Telesur and start using the search engine and be like, okay, I wanna know what's going on with um, the Uyghur people or what's going on in Taiwan or what happened with the Australian First Peoples referendum or what's going on in India with the case system and you will find articles you will find interviews you will find videos you can search on YouTube and you will find it the question is why do we have to make an effort to look for those topics because these type of conflicts are not on the main front page of a newspaper or leading the top trendy conversation. Do our attention span to conflicts and to human rights protection have an expiration date? And is that expiration date determined by mainstream, traditional, alternative, or social media? The moment that social media drops the conversation or that it doesn't become viral, then it drops because another one is more appealing or alluring or fresh or depending on whoever is speaking about it the topic needs to be paid attention to and it is the developed countries and the development countries in development countries are the hierarchies of power and distribution of knowledge there determining what traditional or mainstream or international news media or 
social media talk about? Or are there elites, elites, or big top organizations that I'm not gonna be naming because it's part of one of the many conspiracy theories that are trying to shape the conversations behind the scenes and steer the world for a new world order. Are we already in that new world order? That that is a a very good question for the international relations um, analysis. So the other day, I was listening to a YouTube um, journalist, and he was talking about what would the world look if China was the new superpower. And <laughs> it was interesting because of the way that China as a country has dealt with human rights inside of their borders and the way that they have created this new map basically um, threatening their neighboring countries of taking over land that does not belong to them legally. Um, something that caught my attention was the, the concept of censorship and the silencing of you know, people that do not agree with the Chinese government inside of their borders. And I started thinking, is it possible that we are already at that age that what we are seeing with the social media warfare is actually a symptom of the new world order? Where China is already, you know, one of the key players, if not with Russia. But um, the talks is that China is going to be the one ruling the new world order. Um, of course, Western scholarship will debate that, and we know as well um, the genesis of that type of debate. So to add to that conversation and the possibility that there's an underlying uh, current that states or modern states in the Western world do not want to deal with terrorist organizations and they want to um, destroy them or you know not want to deal with them at all I started wondering the following why states in the Western world that are considered democracies do not want to deal with terrorists and do not want to allow them either to come or to create terror attacks in their borders but why states and this is important this is more important question than the, la than the last one. Why states in autocratic governments with autocratic governments are not given the same disdain? So, states crack down rebels, torture them, or enslave them for years on end, and no one says a thing. Yes, they may be like some United Nations human rights report on the enslavement and the political prisoners and you know the need to release the hostages and the uh, people that are not given a free or fair trial on the United Nations um, UN Charter or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights etc but actually there's not that much disdain in comparison to when Western democracies try to crack down rebels and perhaps not in a pretty way is it that we expect 
the West or Western democracies or democracies as a form of governance model itself, it doesn't need to be only Western, to have a higher moral ground than other countries do. And this uh, takes me to the last point that I'm gonna make, which is the axis of thinking about violence and revolution. And this is important to better navigate the different currents and messages that are being uh, shared on social media. Because though we may be reacting to human rights violations and horrifying news, from a place of good intentions with the message or with the support that we want to do, perhaps the language that we are using or the messages or the images that we are using may be speaking to one of these forms of pacifism, but another person may be wanting, even if you may both be speaking in a similar way, advocating for the similar social causes or peace causes there may be a loss in translation because of the underlying currents of the message so this has to do with pacifism that is revolutionary and pacifism that is anti-revolutionary there's uh, I'm gonna be uh, sharing down below in the description box the link to a graphic created by Kai, Kai Shantham um, that explains this very, very um, direct and very simple to understand, and you know the theory behind it. So, the low pacifism, a strong revolutionary, expresses that oppressed people have the right to retaliation and resistance by any means necessary. While low pacifism, which is another side of no pacifism, the anti-revolutionary conversation is that resistance to the rule of law is terrorism and must be put down. They may be speaking messages that sound contradictory, but there are underlying currents there as to what the rules of morale or the rules of law should be. The first one is the low pacifism, strong revolutionary, basically believes that oppressed people have the right to retaliation and resistance by any means necessary. So liberation is the ultimate morale rule while low pacifism, anti-revolutionary, says that resistance to the law is terrorism and must be put down. So both are agreeing that there is a rule, either through moral or legal grounds. And of course, that's motive of debate and conversation, depending on the context and the situation, and for the people in certain geographic locations to make their um, perception and perspectives and decisions about it. 
but both of these two follow into the no pacifist route. And then the high pacifist or strong pacifism has two modes of conversation. So the strong revolutionary says, how can I be an extremist for love? Does this position really exist? And I know some of you already have noticed this type of conversation as to, you know, we defend all human lives. All human lives are important. You know, we uh, demand ceasefire for all conflicts. It is important that we uh, care for one another and love should triumph it all. You know, that type of conversation. That's high pacifism, a strong revolutionary because it seeks to create like an extremist um, standpoint. And then there's the high pacifism that is anti-revolutionary. And this is the last one. We are all one race. Why can't we all just get along in harmony and not fight? Like, hello, you know, like we need to get together and get over our differences and hug each other and dance together, you know? That is anti-revolutionary according to this graphic. Is it possible that we are receiving similar messages to all of this, but not understanding the underlying currents and intentions behind these messages? And I'm not an expert on, you know, the underlying currents and, oh, what is the message behind all of that? No. Oh, when I was in my seventh grade, there was an um, expert that came over to do like a guest speaking, um, a guest speaker for one of our classes in elemental, no, it was middle school, middle school uh, grade. And basically, um, they put a lot of songs music songs from Shakira, Enrique Iglesias, you know, like even Ricky Martin in Puerto Rico, they're like famous artists known here. And they put the song backwards and apparently there was like some hidden messages that was being um, on the on the recordings of these songs that were so popular and the hidden messages were diabolic and very horrible, etc. Not to the extent here, <laughs> but I'm bringing it as an example that perhaps the way that we are in these social media warfare, if we are noticing it, of course, that's subject to interpretation to each, I don't know. But if you are noticing some of this uh, information warfare in your country or in the way that you consume social media, then perhaps people around you or in Twitter or in, in different types of platforms that you are in are speaking and wanting the same things as you it's just their language is different or their intentions on their lying currents are different not because they don't believe that the world will be a better place if we all just get along it's just that they may have other types of understandings and information access or lack of access to the type of information that you do or a particular way and tone of voice and language and words depending on their own cultures 
to speak about a certain subject, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're speaking something different than you. That's it for today's episode. Let me know your feedback, your comments, hopefully in a respectful way. <laughs> hopefully I don't get hacked or my social media accounts will experience social media warfare just because I'm speaking about it. So hopefully I won't get my accounts blocked and we will continue the conversation. But if not, if this is the last episode that you will hear about me for a while then it was nice <laughs> meeting you and speaking with you and hope that you're having a very good day thank you so much for tuning in talk to you soon